Okay, let me see them. Sola Scriptura. If you would turn in your scriptures this morning to Psalm, Psalm Romans 3, while I get situated here. Romans 3, you have listed there 23 to 26, but I'll begin reading in verse 21. Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we ask that this morning you would take this word and make it effective for your people, that you would bring sinners to salvation, and that you would take those who have already trusted in you and you would build them up in the faith, that we might know what we believe, that we might know why, that we might serve you better, and that we might tell of your glory to the world beyond these walls. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. We spent, well, it's been a good time in Sunday school, actually, uh, It's been very good, but one of the things we spent just a few moments on this morning was we were bemoaning the lack of doctrinal understanding, even among the church, even in the church. I read a survey recently, and it was one was referred to this morning that said basically the same thing. And in some basic doctrinal matters, even among believers, we scored lower (laughs) than the population at large. So either they're better guessers than we are, or we have somehow allowed ourselves to be led astray Um, rather than diving in. Well, this morning, I'm warning you, my heart and my mind are full, and uh, there's a lot of doctrine here. There's issues of sin, original sin, homartology. There's issues of justification, propitiation. There's issues of a word I found just this week of the unitas simplicitatis, which has to do with the simplicity of God himself in his being. Now, we're not going to use all those words, but it's in here. Um, this is for our good, and so we need to pay attention to some sound doctrine this morning. And your prayer for me should be that God would form my thoughts into about a 30-minute <laughs> presentation, because <laughs> there's so much. But before we get to some of these high-minded things, let's go a little bit lower, and let me ask you, who here is a fan of the Andy Griffith Show, or who here even knows of the Andy Griffith Show? Because as I get older, there is a, a you know generation gap. So many of you... Know, know it well. Um, it's a classic. A lot of classic characters in the Andy Griffith show. Uh, Andy himself, and of course, who can forget Barney Fife, Don Knotts, who was Barney Fife in any part he played in any show. But um, there's also Opie, Opie, Andy's son. And Opie, of course, today known as Ron Howard. Uh, Opie's just this child growing up, and so you see him come across several issues as he grows up, and Andy, being the single father, you know, handles it as best he can. But there's one episode especially called Opie and the Spoiled Kid, which is one of my favorites. I think think it just has it all in there. But another child moves to town who's not 
instructed or disciplined in the way Opie was, and this child has a great influence on Opie and informs him or instructs him on how to challenge his father. How's that work with you in your house there, Mark? Challenge his father. And Opie, who it seems is, is not this type of kid, but he takes the encouragement and he goes to his dad, and they bring up an issue over how much he gets paid for doing some of his chores, and Opie no longer thinks he has to. And so Andy says, fine, no work, no pay. And then out of Opie's mouth come those three words that every father cringes at and doesn't know whether to laugh or to be enraged. You can probably guess what they are. That's not fair. That's not fair. I hate that. Hate that. Now, my kids growing up, who are not kids anymore, um, know my answer right off the bat to where they stop saying it. And I won't put you on the spot and ask you to say it out loud, Caleb. But fair is where you go to buy the cotton candy. I don't care about fair. I'm the arbiter of fair in this house. Um, So Opie and the spoiled kid, that's not fair. And strictly speaking, that relates to us this morning because... (laughs) Because our salvation is not fair, unless properly understood. We do not, by God's grace, get what we deserve. But we all have this innate sense of fairness. We think we should get what we deserve. We think that we are the best judges of what's fair. We think that somehow we know best in issues of fairness. If I do certain things, I ought to have certain rewards. And sometimes it's best that we don't get what we deserve. Is it not? So in our passage, just as a summary statement, you would have to see, or you will see, that all stand guilty. Some partake of salvation, which for them, really, strictly speaking, is not fair. And yet, there is no injustice with God. There is no injustice with God. And so to that end, let me give you just your three points from that statement. Uh, No distinction, no justice, with a question mark behind it, no justice, no distinction, no justice, and no problem. No distinction, no justice, no problem. Let me give you a little bit of context. Two weeks ago, we we looked at Romans 1, 16 and 17, talking about this righteousness of God or this righteousness from God. And in that one phrase, we saw Paul giving us the gospel, but in in a pregnant form. There's so much there that needs unpacked, but he's introducing the topic that he's going to spend, really, the book of Romans unpacking. So what he gave us in the form of a bud, now we're going to see the tree more in full leaf as we go along. So he spends most of the book explaining and answering the question, how can man be right with God? And so we need, he tells us in this phrase, the righteousness from God, an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own, but which God supplies in Christ and is received by faith. This is the righteousness of God. But then Paul begins to unpack it. Who needs this righteousness? Who needs this salvation? We all do. Not just all we who are here, but everybody descended from Adam and Eve. Everybody needs this righteousness because all have sinned. And so Paul spends the better part of the next three chapters, starting partway through chapter 1 and going mostly through chapter 3, stating his case that everyone is in need of salvation. From the beginning of creation to the present, man has moved away from God actively moved away from God. We see this in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where, God talks, where Paul talks about the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And he goes through this, 
this long list of how as people turned away from God and did not consider the knowledge of God worth keeping, that God gave them over to their sins and to all the consequences thereof. And while that should be a sermon in its own, let me just say that it gives this evidence that mankind by nature is set against God and left to himself moves away from God, not towards him. You can see this in our passage there, you can see this in Genesis 3, verses, uh, chapters 3 through 11, because shortly after the fall, sin takes root. And the movement of mankind is towards more and more violence, more and more rebellion, as he insists on independence from God and doing his own thing. And it spreads and it consumes mankind until all of mankind is typified by violence. And so God then executes judgment in the time of Noah, but he saves Noah. And then he recreates. He starts over. And yet, immediately... When Noah's family comes out of the ark, sin reappears, sin spreads again, and and people become violent again, Uh, people become God-haters again, and living in rebellion. And so we come to the time of the Tower of Babel that we looked at actually a couple of months ago, and God once again intervenes and scatters them. But the whole history of mankind, not just then, but now, these things are written that we might understand that the history of mankind is moving away from God, not towards him. Mankind as a whole. And that is really the rest of Romans 1. But when we get to Romans 2, we see a different kind of person where Paul says, this person is the one who thinks of himself as, he's pretty good. And this, this is more me. I don't see myself as a, you know, an open rebel, although at times I'm sure I have been. And again, that's me looking at me saying I'm not a rebel. <laughs> Probably was. You have to ask my father, he might agree with that statement. Maybe more of a rebel than I think. But most of us compare ourselves to someone else and think, hey, we're pretty good. You know, and we will even sit in judgment over that person on any given issue. Only to find out that we actually kind of do the same things ourselves. And so this part of Romans, Paul is telling these people, you who pass judgment on them, don't you realize you do it too? And so this this law that you acknowledge is there even though you do not have God's law because you yourselves are not Jews. This law that is there, even it will condemn you. Because it doesn't matter if you are, how you are compared to the next person. The fact is, you are in rebellion to God. And the fact is, you even do the things you accuse them of. And so this person thinks they're pretty good, but God assures them that he will impartially judge all, and that they will fail even by their own standards. And then finally he comes to the Jews, his people starting in chapter 2, 17, and carrying on through 3, 9, he finally turns to the Jews, God's chosen, those who possessed the written law of God, those who considered themselves a guide to the blind, teachers of the ignorant, arrogant, self-assured. And Paul says, you, in fact, are no better, but, in fact, more guilty, because you have the oracles of God, and yet you break them. He even has this one little phrase, I didn't write the verse down, where he speaks to them almost tongue-in-cheek, you who claim that thou shalt not steal. Do you rob temples? And Paul is probably referring to an episode where they were no, someone was known to have broken into a temple, a Jew, and stolen an idol. <laughs> so this is Paul taking current events here and connecting to his audience. But the Jews stand condemned as well. And so the summary statement is, in, verses, in chapter 3, starting in verse 10 down, is that there is no one righteous. Not even one, none who understands, none who seeks God, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. All are sinful. All stand condemned. 
And then we drop down back to our context starting in verse 23. Actually starting at the very end of verse 22, for there is no distinction. There is no special race of people. There is no portion of all of human society, Western civilization, whatever you want to call it. There is no one. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, sin is one of those things that, yeah, the church doesn't talk about enough. Face it, it can be a downer. But you don't know what you need saved from until you are forced to look at it sometimes in the mirror. And we have a sin problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there is no distinction. Let's look at this and break it down a little bit. All have sinned. All have strictly broken or actively broken God's law. Uh, It is something you have done, not just something you're going to do, although you will. But the fact is, you as you are, apart from Christ, stand guilty, have broken God's law. All have sinned and fallen short. Believe it or not, a little phrase like fallen short has been debated a long time. What does it mean to fall short of God's glory? And there are all kinds of theories put forth. Um, Failed to gain God's approval. Failed to live up to God's design. Uh, Failed to gain his approval by living up to his standard of righteousness. I'm not sure it matters. The, the, the part here is, the dangerous part here is we, we fell short. That is the verdict. Because of your sin, you have fallen short. There was an old preacher, since we're doing you know, old TV shows, old preacher, uh, J. Vernon McGee through the Bible radio. My mother has listened to for 50 or 60 years now. Um, and he said, he lives out in California, Los Angeles. I'm going to make it more Floridian here, but I'm using his example so I don't get choosed. Uh, accused of plagiarism, right, Glenn? Not, not Pelagianism. So I don't get accused of plagiarism. This is J. Vernon McGee. But let's just imagine we all go down here to the Jupiter Lighthouse or somewhere there that is very close to the Bahamas. And the closest port in the Bahamas from Florida is what, Freeport? And so we're all going to play a game this day. And we're going to say, we're going we're to go play the game jumping to Freeport. Now, in my best days, I was no athlete, so I'm not going to do very well. I'm going to get a few feet in, and I'm going to be in the water. Somebody else who might be in better shape, get a running start, and everything might clear me and do quite well. But where did we all end up in our jumping to Freeport game? We all end up falling short. The problem, the problem is that we have no hope in living up to God's standards. God gave his standards. God gave his law to point us to our need of a Savior. But we cannot keep it, and we have all fallen short. But the problem even is deeper than that. It's deeper than our specific actions, because the actions really are nothing more than the fruit of our fallen nature, are they not? So when we come to this, we're talking about the doctrine of original sin, and we're saying that we are guilty because Adam was guilty. Because Adam sinned, we were counted guilty. Now, that doesn't seem fair, (laughs) Either, but it's a fact. All who have been generated, who proceeding naturally from Adam, are guilty of Adam's sin. And then even worse than that is because Adam's sin, all of human nature was corrupted. And so by the time you actually actively commit a sin, all you're doing is producing or showing the fruit thereof. And so our condition is much worse than just that we sin. Our condition is that there's something wrong down here deep in the root. And that we have original sin. This is because of Adam. We see this in Genesis 3. We see it in Romans 5 where the connection is made that through Adam sin came into the world, but through Christ comes salvation, which we will get to. But through Adam we are all guilty. And it was testified to by David in Psalm 51 when he said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
sinful at birth. From the time, let me add an editorial comment. The idea of ascribing guilt to someone under, who was just conceived acknowledges the life of that individual, by the way. That's a moral quality of a human being. But that's a different sermon. Okay? We're sinful from the point of conception, testified by David in Psalm 51. Our sin, our act of sins, merely proves the condition that we stand condemned. And we are all in the same boat. We are all fallen short in the ocean. So there is no distinction No distinction. All have sinned. And there is no justice. Point number two. No justice. If we look just at verse 24, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. Now Paul has just spent two chapters telling everybody how guilty they are. And now he talks about justification. And it is as a gift by his grace. Justification, there is no better definition than the one given to us in the larger catechism this morning, is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not only for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith. Justification is simply the judge, the judge sitting in heaven. God himself declares you acceptable to him in spite of your sin. He does this as a gift by his grace. As a gift. The idea of as a gift means it is done for you freely. It is done without cost to you. It is given as a gift and by his grace. This is simply the kindness of God, his goodwill, his benevolent attitude towards you. It is as a gift by his grace. Now, any one of those phrases, of those two phrases, would have been sufficient. But because Paul is trying to emphasize that it is in nothing in you that God justifies, says it's as a gift by his grace. There's emphasis there in the repetition of the idea. And I say to you that if this were the end, if this were the totality of the story, it would be unfair. It would be unfair. Proverbs seventeen fifteen says, He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Believe it or not, God is not free to just walk through the earth and granting forgiveness of sin as he chooses at no cost, simply on a whim. But that's not how God acts. That is not how God acts because there is no injustice in the Lord. That would be an abomination. So there must be more to the story. It's not a matter just of, there is not an injustice here. If, if this were the end of it, it would simply display God as gracious, yes, benevolent, yes, but unjust and unfair, and that cannot be. The good news here is that there is nothing of necessity that requires that you pay for your sins. Okay, There's no necessity that you pay for your sins, but there is a necessity that sin be paid for. And that brings us then to point number three. So there's no distinction, no justice But ultimately, there's no problem, no final conflict. We pick up reading in verse 24, starting in the second half. We'll just start right there. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate the righteousness of God, because in the forbearance he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. No problem. No final conflict. Before we go further, 
I think it's necessary for us to define a couple of terms, though, because there are some theological words here. Being justified is a gift. We've already defined justification by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is simply being freed from a state of bondage by the payment of a ransom. Justice demands payment of a debt, but not necessarily payment of that debt by the guilty party. So redemption is the payment of the debt, the supplying of the ransom. It's interesting in the early church, one example of this would be that some some people who came to faith were wealthy. And they would go down to the slave markets and they would actually purchase a slave and then set him free. Now there's a picture of redemption. Since we are slaves of sin and yet God provides the price to pay for the penalty of our sins that we might be set free from not just the penalty of that sin, but its power and eventually all of its stains because he sees us and accepts us in Christ. Redemption, the payment of a ransom. And then this word that I love, propitiation. Another word Glenn brought up this morning, propitiation. It's just kind of fun to say, to be honest. Propitiation, I like that. Um, As a noun, this only appears in the New Testament four times. Significant word, though, far beyond its usage. In Hebrews 9, 5, the same Greek word is translated as mercy seat. Mercy seat connects us back to the Old Testament. The mercy seat was that seat with the cherubim kind of carved and attached to it that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Every time mercy seat, almost every time mercy seat is used in the Old Testament and translated into the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is this word for propitiation that is used. So there's a close attachment here to mercy seat. And the mercy seat, being this cap or this lid on the Ark of the Covenant, is where one time a year, one time a year, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice of atonement and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. Okay, so this is the place of atonement one time a year where the blood was sprinkled. Well, Christ is not the place of the atonement, but Christ is the sacrifice itself. There is a connection here between the mercy seat and the sacrifice placed upon it. But Christ himself being that sacrifice, the one that is offered there. We are told here that is he was made a propitiation in his blood through faith. So you can see the connection to the whole sacrificial idea. We are told in Hebrews 9, 12 that he entered into this holy place, speaking of Jesus, the Son of God, not through the blood of bulls and calves, but through his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The idea of the blood of Christ gaining the eternal redemption for the people of God. So Christ himself becomes this ransom payment by which we are set free from sin's penalty and through whom we have our redemption. It's interesting... I, I, again, I don't want to plagiarize, but I had a professor a long time ago who explained propitiation because it is not, it's not, you know, when you're talking about payment of a debt, you know, it's not just a mathematical precision, is it? I mean, if I went out here this afternoon as we're getting ready to leave and backed my car up and ran into somebody else's and did some damage, then I would have a debt to that person. And let's just say I jump out of my car and we say, okay, that's about, well, these days, a taillight, you know, $300 or something, not 30 Right, And because of the hassle to you and all, I'll just give an extra 100 bucks because you're going to have to go buy the taillight, whatever, get it fixed. In, in a technical, precise way, I have paid for that debt, have I not? But that's really not a propitiation. A propitiation would be more like once I've run into your car, I jump out of my car and say, why should you have to drive this damaged vehicle? Let's go throw it out. And let's go down to the car lot, and you can pick the one you want, and I will simply cover it. 
Okay? No, there, there's more than a mathematical precision there. There's, there is no longer in you any anger or resentment towards me, is there? I have kind of covered that too. That's a propitiation. It is such a gross overpayment. If you take the sins of all the world and you add them up for all time, it, you can still assign it a number. It's a finite number. But Christ himself, being the very Son of God, eternal in his very being and nature, giving his life for yours, his blood for your sin, is an infinite payment of a finite problem. And I'm telling you, it's such a gross overpayment that it also satisfies totally the wrath of God. There's no resentment left. A propitiation of Jesus actually makes it possible for you to come before the Father, and, and he's not thinking, oh, here they come again. He gladly receives you because there's no barrier left between you and the king. That's a propitiation. So it's on the basis of this propitiation through whom we have our redemption. And so these words with this theological depth have great meaning and help put this picture into focus. Now, whom God put forth, if we go back to our text, he is whom God displayed in verse 25. In the ESV it says whom God put forth, the NAS says whom God displayed publicly. I tend to think there, no matter which word you use, it includes the idea of a public demonstration because the Holy of Holies was a private thing. And so God has publicly displayed this thing that he has done in giving his son as a propitiation in his blood through faith. You know, we see these ideas come together in one other place, and I have to go there and read it because I just love this verse. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, we all, we all value so much the money and the riches of this world. And that's not enough to cover the debt of our sin. But God has given Christ as a propitiation in his blood to fully satisfy the wrath due to our sins. And God is the one who has done this. God has put him forth. God actively. This shows the initiative of God in doing what we could not when we were helpless in our sins, when we didn't have the ability to come to him, when we didn't even care, God paid the ransom for our redemption in Christ. And it's on that basis, then, that he declares us justified. It's on that basis that he tells us that we can be accepted as righteous. And so what appears unfair, we don't get what we deserve, okay, is fair, because God has taken it upon himself to cancel out the debt, to pay the debt, that we could not do. And in doing this, when we talk about there is no problem, like I said, I almost called that no final conflict. There is no final conflict in the person or being of God either because he himself has vindicated his own righteousness in doing this. It talks about how God did this to demonstrate his righteousness in verse 25 because in his forbearance he passed over sins previously committed. This is the idea that for centuries, you know, early on when people sinned, God eventually judged them. There was Noah. And then later on, when sin gets out of hand again, there's Babel, and he scatters them. And then later on, when sin is getting gross and nasty in a couple of places, like Sodom and Gomorrah, God rains down hellfire. But in the meantime now, since then, centuries go by, and it doesn't seem that God acts that way anymore. And so it seems as if some sins are not being paid for. Well, that would also be an injustice of God, would it not? 
not? And so now, in the fullness of time, God brings forth his son and offers him up as a propitiation to pay for these sins. Because not one sin will go unpunished one way or the other. It will either be punished in Christ for the people of God or it will be punished by the person who refuses to bow the knee and trust in Christ. So he has vindicated his own righteousness that he might be seen to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So when people sin for centuries without judgment, they begin to think that God is unjust. But God has also put, shown that to be the lie that it is. All sin will be paid for either at the cross or on your own. But he has given Christ that you might be just, that he might be just and justifier because he cannot be otherwise. And this is where we come up with my new favorite term, the unitas simplicitatis. And it simply means both the unity and the simplicity of God. God is many things. And if you list the attributes of God like we did a couple weeks ago, you see that God is omniscient. God is omnipresent, all-powerful. God is ase, which just means independent in some sense beyond my understanding. He is mercy. He is wisdom. He is love. He is holy. He is just. And how can God be all these things all the time? I don't know, because I'm not him. But he can be, and he is. God never forgives a sin on a whim. There's a reason. There's a payment There is a logic to it. God does not act out of his mercy at the loss of his sense of holiness or justice. But the good news is, neither is he holy in justice to the point that he forgets his mercy. He is what he is. The unitatis simplicitatis. He is a faithful judge, a holy God, but he is also full of mercy and compassion, not desiring the death of the wicked. He is all these things all the time. At the cross, where Christ was offered up as a sacrifice in his blood, both the justice and mercy of God meet. Justice because the penalty due for sins is paid for, as the wrath of God is poured out on Christ, and the Father is fully satisfied that those sins are covered. And mercy because this payment for sin, payment because this payment for sinners who could not save themselves and yet are redeemed and set free forevermore. Because Christ is a sufficient sacrifice. Behold the kindness and severity of the Lord. Wonder at the incomprehensibility of God in all his glory. And worship him who has redeemed you for himself for the praise to the praise of his glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we thank you. For the gospel that tells us how we might be right with you. Lord, by faith alone. By faith alone. Because Christ himself has been made the propitiation for our sins. The blood of Christ poured out. That those who would trust in him might be made, might be reconciled to the Father. Lord, drive these words home. I feel absolutely insufficient at communicating these things. But by your spirit, I pray that you would would plant them in our hearts and that you would cause these seeds to grow and bear fruit. In Christ's name I ask. Amen.